Our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 uh, brings us to the culmination of the ministry of John the Baptist, the actual baptism of Jesus Christ himself. It also introduces us to the public ministry of uh, Jesus Christ as we look at it. And perhaps Isaiah the prophet best described the ministry of John the Baptist some 600 years before John the Baptist was even born. And I pick up with Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This morning, in our passage in Luke chapter two, uh, three, verses fifteen through twenty-two, we're gonna we're gonna look at some of John the Baptist's ministry, and in particular, uh, particularly this culminating event of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that as we look at this passage, you will take comfort as a Christian and being like Jesus, and that the Father is well pleasing with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you. We pray, God, with really a total dependence upon you and the Holy Spirit that, that uh, inspired the prophets and the apostles to write this word, to apply these truths to our heart. Lord, we are by nature uh, a, a kind of a dull people, a lazy people. Uh, we tend to uh, be uh, absorbed passively the entertainments around us. And sometimes it takes real work for us to be able to listen to the Bible, to be able to think about its truths, to be able to check those truths, to keep up with the Word of God ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would find us to be willing servants of Christ this morning as we listen to your Word. Give us our marching orders, O great Commander, and help us to know and to love your Word. And let us leave this day more in love with Jesus Christ than when we came in this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, please do turn to Luke chapter 15 and verses 20, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. You will find your home group helps insert of some assistance as you look at how I've organized this morning's sermon. You're going to see, first of all, the expectations of the people in verses 15 through 18, the imprisonment of the prophet in verses 19 through 20, and the pleasure of the Father in verses 21 through 22. Uh, first of all, the expectations of the people in verses 15 through 18. God says, Dr. Luke writes, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. 
So again, John's emphasis has been on a, a, a baptism of repentance. It is not the same thing as our Christian baptism. It is, a, it is to get people to recognize their need for Messiah who is coming and who shows up in our passage today. Uh, but, but because he had become something of a, of a celebrity, literally people were walking from all over that area to be able to go to the wastelands near the uh, Dead Sea at the River Jordan, uh, to be able to hear from him and to see what's going on. So it would be natural that many people uh, would expect that he was actually the Christ. The other thing that was motivating them is the same kind of thing that motivates you. You look at the news and you look at what's going on in Washington, and you look at what's going on in our culture in general, and you just say, Lord Jesus, come back. Well, they were the same as us. The people who were the, who were the true believers, the quiet in the land, would see the apostasy of Judaism. They would see the, the, the wickedness of Roman rule. They would see the effects that it has on the culture. And they would say, Christ, come. Well, they thought maybe with John the Baptist, he was the Christ. But he's very clear that he is not. Uh, in John chapter 1, uh, we understand, and it's always helpful to be able to look at parallel passages, and they all uh, start Jesus' public ministry with this baptism. When the, and it says here that when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is a fundamental pr uh, principle of what it means to be a Christian. You are not looking for the attention or the glory of on yourself, you are looking to reflect that to Christ. And that is what that is what John the Baptist does. Not only is he not the Christ, his ministry, which is so popular, which is the big thing right now, is nothing, nothing compared to the ministry of Jesus Christ who was to come. And it's interesting as he's making these comments, Jesus is literally probably walking to be baptized there. Um, so, again, this principle is that something that's it's important for churches to do, it's important for individuals to do, is to give God the glory. And, and there's this graspingness that's in our nature that says we've got to grab everything for ourselves or we'll be ignored or we'll be bullied or, or we won't get the attention that we need. There's a, there's a hunger, a lust for fame in our culture. We all want to be Instagram influencers, right? But that is not for the Christian. For well, the Christian, we are to deflect the glory to God. And that's actually where you're going to find your contentment. That's actually where you're going to find your joy. Kent Hughes gives this great story from the, the ministry of E.V. Hill, the pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. E.V. Hill was, uh, uh, was a real force in Christianity all during, uh, up until, I guess, I think he died in the 1990s. Uh, but, uh, but he was friends with Billy Graham, was an evangelical pastor, had the largest, uh, probably one of the largest black congregations uh, in America. And uh, uh, Kent uh, tells a story that E.V. Hill told. There was an elderly woman in his church, and no one knew how old she was, but she was so old, her nickname was 1800. And she would sit on the front row, right where Scarlett's sitting right there. She would sit on the front row, and they would have visiting preachers come in. And she had this tendency whenever, uh, whenever uh, someone was preaching to, 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 to cry out, you know, because they're Baptists. They get to do that. We don't get to do that. Uh, to, to cry out, get them up. Get them up. In other words, exalt Jesus. Bring Jesus into your sermon. Get them up. Get them up. And, uh, and basically, if you had a visited preacher and if he didn't get up Jesus, if he started preaching about himself or thought he was especially erudite and clever and wanted to wow everybody with his personality, she would just, 1800, would just crank up. Get him up. Get him up. 
And Kent Hughes says, if visiting preachers who didn't exalt Christ had a very hard day that day. So, but that's, that really ought to be our purpose. Get them up. Get them up. It's ever our desire to exalt Christ, to give him the attention, to give him the glory. And again, it's, you just need to accept that because to do otherwise, it'll end up being very painful for you. And, and you really diminish the ministry of Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. But the more you make it about him, the more you are blessed. This will be Scarlett's job from now on. You, know, you, you get them up. You're welcome to start that next time Jack preaches. So John is basically saying there's just no comparison here. You cannot compare. It's like comparing an amoeba uh, to, to a blue whale. You cannot compare our two ministries here. And he uses this term here. And, and there's several terms in here that are agrarian terms, terms in the ancient Middle East that we're not familiar with. But he says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This would have been shocking so here, here is the number one religious celebrity of the time. And the priests and the, and the Levites and the, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees are the ones that are coming to him. And for him to make this comment, they knew exactly what it was that he was saying. According to one ancient rabbi, when he's talking about a disciple working for another rabbi, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosening of his sandal thong. That was one of those things that was so demeaning, so in a sense in that culture of walking around in the dirt with just sandals on, so disgusting that not even the lowest slave was required to perform that function. What does John say? I'm not even worthy to do that. You think my ministry is great? I'm not even worthy to be his slave. In that, he was like Jesus, wasn't he? In the night he was betrayed, took a water, a basin of water, a towel, and started to undo everybody's sandal. And, of course, Peter understood this principle. He was offended by this. And he said, no, you need to let me do this. You need to let me do this because he was teaching that. Before that great event, John was an ex excellent example. That's the principle we are to have here. Can you imagine if you really embrace that? Your expectations for what God owes you would be nil. And that's when you become discontent. That's when you become uh, engrossed in self-pity. That's, that's when you are just frustrated with life. Is because you think you deserve better. You think God's holding out for you. Why did God make me this way? Why didn't God give me all these blessings that all these other people seem to have? How come things are going badly for me? How come I'm sick? How come I don't have money? All this kind of stuff. Be like John. Be like Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And I'm telling you one thing. The nanosecond, when you see his glory and see the eternal salvation that he purchased for you on the cross, none of that other stuff is going to matter to enjoy contentment with Jesus Christ is to take this position that you're not even worth being his slave he says here John continues he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire now y'all this is a testimony of the deity of Christ liberal theologians are very uncomfortable with these kind of statements that's why we love them we love to make liberals uncomfortable 
not because we're mean, well, we might be a little mean-spirited, but uh, because the deity of Christ is all throughout Scripture. You cannot deny it. Do you reckon you have to be God in order to provide the Holy Spirit to someone? Well, that's what John's saying here. He's coming. I'm baptizing you with water. I mean, water's everywhere. Water's everywhere. Even in the desert, you can find water, right? But he is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As David Gooding says, John could put repentant people in water. In a, in a sense, anybody can. Only one who was God could put people in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit in them. And he makes his comment, and with fire. And the commentators are a little split on what does he mean with fire. Well, I think it can mean two things, right? It can be a purifying spirit of fire like we had at Pentecost. Or it could be the fire of judgment. And final judgment is often considered like a, a flaming fire, an unquenchable fire. Well, I think you find both of those in the prophet Malachi. And I think Jesus means both of these. I mean, uh, John means both of these because this is what the ministry of Jesus does. It both purifies you and it's also a fire of judgment. But if you go back to Malachi chapter 3, you know, we love Malachi because it's the one that mentions uh, with Isaiah and some others, mentions the coming of the precursor, the one who's going to uh, prepare the way uh, for the coming of the Lord. But if you look at Malachi 3, he says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, which he did as a baby. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, the holy is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Jude and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Folks, you want this kind of fire. You want this purifying fire. Nothing makes you more miserable than your own selfishness and your own sin. And you want that part of your life to be burned up. You want to be able to present to the Lord a, a perfect offering. You want to be holy as he is holy, right? There's one description, of you, and you've probably heard this before, but it bears repeating again, that, that the way they would use to the refine silver, for instance, is they would take the, the raw silver and they would heat it up and they would, they would look in this great uh, chalice, perhaps a stone jar or something like that, where they were heating up that silver. And as the impurities rose to the top, they would skim off the impurities and they knew that it was ready when they could see their reflection in the top of that silver. Well, that's the way it is with us. God loves you enough to keep burning away all those impurities, all those little habits of yours, all of those little uh, prides and pities and everything else in you. He's waiting to burn that off until you can see his reflection in your life. It's a beautiful illustration of sanctification of what can happen uh, with the Christian. We want the dross to burn away. We want this kind of fire. But there's another kind of fire. There's a judgmental fire. Malachi goes on to chapter one. For behold, the days are coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming shall be set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You know, people, people uh, 
get upset with evangelical churches sometimes. They say, all those people, they're just always preaching hail, fire, and brimstone. You know why we do that? Because Malachi preached hail, fire, and brimstone. John the Baptist preached hail, fire, and brimstone. Brimstone. You know who else preached hail, fire, and brimstone? Who preached it more than anybody else? Jesus. The ones that some churches want to make like this kind of hippie going through the flowers, just blessing everybody. He wasn't a hippie. He did bless people. He probably loved flowers. I don't know where I was going with that. But anyway, but, but he preached hell. And because, why? Because he's trying to warn you. He's trying to warn you. Well, John doesn't stop there. His, he's got another illustration here. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. Again, this is an ancient agrarian expression, and you've probably heard this too, but they would bring in the wheat harvest. They would take the, the tops of the wheat, uh, the, the heads of the wheat, and then they would let them dry out. You actually still see this today. If you go out into a field, you'll see the, the, a lot of times the hay, the wheat uh, drying out in, in, uh, in bundles. And they would dry that out, all out, and then when a wind came up, and when the time was right, they would beat the wheat, right? That would separate the chaff from the kernel, and then as the wind's going, they would get a winnowing fork and they would throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow over to one side. And all you had down here was good old wheat that you would be able to grind and make into bread. Right. So what's he saying here? This is what this is what life's like. Uh, this is what life. There's going to be this great separation that comes at the end of time. Anglican Archbishop J.C. Ryle described this day of judgment. It's worth me quoting him uh, in, uh, completely. Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation. Every congregation. And often sit side by side. It passes the power of man to separate them. P false professions is often like true, and grace is often so weak and feeble that it, in many cases the right discernment of character is impossible. The wheat and the chaff will continue to gather together until the Lord returns. But there will be an awful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them forevermore. The righteous shall be gathered into a place of happiness and safety, and the wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt. In the great sifting day, everyone shall go to his own place. There's this idea there that once that, that sifting has gone through, you've thrown that chaff up, uh, that weed up in there, the chaff's blown off and everything. Then after that, there's a, you get a broom, and you make sure you have 100% of the wheat kernels over here and 100% of the chaff over here. The wheat is useful. It's a seed. It even brings life. The chaff is useless. You just burn it. You don't want that stuff sitting around. So this is what Messiah is going to do. And then uh, Luke kind of summarizes. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. You know, so he, he John said so much, he just couldn't. Luke has to kind of move on. He sort of gives us a summary statement here. But, the, but we really need to go to school on John and his character. Talk about a bold guy. He just did not fear men. And he knew what was going to happen. He knew that his ministry was temporary and it had its purpose and it wouldn't last very long. If you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, most of us would say that really wasn't that successful. It was not that successful. And yet he did exactly what God intended for him to do. And his attitude was this way the entire time. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Now we see the imprisonment of, of, of the prophet here. Uh, Luke kind of goes from a chronological account to a thematic summary of what, uh, what he's doing. He starts off with the word but here as a transition to kind of tell you what eventually happened to John since we're on that to- topic because he's ready to bring you to Christ and to, to show you uh, first his genealogy and then about his public ministry. So we see the imprisonment of the prophet in verses 19 through 20. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Again, uh, who is the Herod here? He is uh, Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. He ruled from 4 B.C. to 30 uh, 9 AD. So he was there the entire ministry of John the Baptist, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, and he was a scoundrel. He basically uh, divorced his wife in order to marry his sister-in-law. So he just, sister-in-law, so he destroyed both of those marriages. But he was one who was uh, curried favor with the Romans and liked to celebrate the way the Romans uh, did with drunken orgies and things like that. So John just goes on, I mean, Luke just goes on to say all the other evil things that uh, he had done. There was such a long list of immoral abuses that he didn't bring it up here. Uh, But John decided, uh, Herod's not above rebuke. Herod is the head of the government. What's the responsibility of a government? I mean, this is really a good question for us to ask these days. Because you kind of wonder if people in the government know this. What's the responsibility of the government? To protect the people. Right? Man, that's just its basic core, right? To protect its people, right? To, to, to look out for the interest of their own people. That, that uh, basically give that government permission to be able to rule over them. Well, Herod wasn't doing that. Herod was an immoral man. He was a wicked man. He was a man driven by lust and driven by passion. And John the Baptist got out and pointed it out to him. And they threw him in jail as a result. It's interesting. R.C. Sproul makes a, a point that this is really was one of the great jobs of the prophets. Right. Moses confronted Pharaoh. Right. Uh, all of the prophets would confront a lot of the injustice that was being done. Elijah uh, confronted Ahab. There and confronted the false teaching that was being uh, in the northern tribes of Israel with the prophets of Baal, that sort of thing. And John the Baptist confronts Herod. R.C. Shrule states this, and this is again worth quoting uh, at length because I think he he makes a point here. Uh, uh, R.C. Shrule says the government of the United States may claim a legal right to tell the church that it cannot discuss political issues from the pulpit, but it does not have the moral right to do that. The office of the preaching, the office of the prophetic criticism go through the whole of sacred scripture, beginning with Moses. And he gives some examples here, even including, for instance, Nathan confronting David and that kind of thing. Throughout the history of the church, it has been the function of the church not to be the state, but to be the conscience of the state. God establishes government for the purpose of sustaining, protecting and maintaining the sanctity of human life. When a government fails to do that, it has been demonized. It is the responsibility of the church to stand up that the government and say, stop. God won't tolerate you people who have no regard for human life or ethics. It is not the duty of the church to be the state, but it is the duty of the state to be the state. So there is a moral responsibility of churches, of, of Christians in general, to point out when the state is not being 
the state. Now, that's a scary thing. This is not a political rally, and we don't want to get to where we talk about these things so much that we lose sight of Christ Jesus. But it is our job from time to time to step up and say, you can't have an open border. Abortion is wrong. Cheating is immoral. Overbearing taxation is wrong. That's perfectly appropriate. You're not being political. You're actually being Christian by pointing those things out. When the state fails to be the state. And if you do it, you're in a long line of prophetic criticism that has been established in Holy Scripture. And then uh, Herod added this to them all. They locked John up in prison. Of course, Matthew and Mark give us more of an account of what happened on this. And this is a sad testimony of the character of Herod. So they had this big drunken party, right? Herodotus, uh, his wife's, uh, well, sorry, sister-in-law wife, uh, his daughter comes out and she does, she does the hoochie-coochie dance. And she's probably a belly dancer or something. I don't know. But anyway, he is just, it's not enough to lust after her mother. He's now wanting her. And then in some kind of a drunken vow, he gets up and he says, whatever you want, half of my kingdom. I'm telling you one thing, I would have taken half the kingdom. Of course, he wouldn't have invited me to dance. But uh, you can have half my kingdom. And what does she want? What does she want? That wicked, wicked woman, her mother, wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Talk about a party pooper. You're going to come in with a head on a platter. He died because of a drunken vow. Isn't that pathetic? I bet he didn't regret it, though. He died a martyr. In a sense, he was sort of the, the first Christian martyr, right? The first believing martyr. So John the Baptist had a consuming interest in glorifying God, and he paid the ultimate price for doing so. It will cost you something in this world. Uh, if it doesn't cost you your head, it probably won't cost you your head. It'll cost you your reputation. People won't like you. You'll be awkward to, to be around, that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, but if you do it in the love of Christ, you do it with the truth of Holy Scripture, you're doing exactly what God would want you to do. And that John the Baptist is given to us as an example here. Now we see here the... The pleasure of the Father in verses 21 through 22. Now, when the people were baptized and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So after years of obscurity, I mean, the only thing we know of Jesus's childhood and young adulthood is that that episode we looked at where he goes to the temple. Right. And he's found talking to the teachers, probably teaching the teachers in some ways. And that's all we know. So for 30 years, he's just been up in little old backcountry Nazareth, learning his father's business, doing what? And he, he sort of appears on the scene here. Again, uh, J John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So why did Jesus come to be baptized? Well, I think there's some, probably some pretty good answer here. John the Baptist, according to the other accounts, had a hard time with Jesus coming to baptize. He said, no, I need to be baptized by you. Why would you want to be baptized by me. But Jesus says, let it be done now, for this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So if, if someone is to proclaim themselves to be a righteous man who's interested in God and spiritual things and, and keeping God's covenants, this is what they would have done. They would have gone through John's the, uh, the Baptist uh, baptism. But what he's also showing here, he's showing an act of solidarity. You know, one of the one of the basic principles of leadership is you don't ask your people to do something that they're not willing to do. Jesus commands us 
to go therefore from all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, by this example, he's showing he himself was willing to be so associated with you sinners that he was even willing to go through the baptism that sinners went through. And what a blessing it was for us. And then, of course, this was also the, the big trigger moment for the, the affirmation of his ministry from God. It says here, the heavens were opened. Now, this is, how many, how many thousands of people have been baptized at this point in time? John's been out here for months. But something different happened this time with Jesus. Something different. Now, he recognized, if you look at the other accounts, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he recognized that something's going on there. Now, he probably hadn't seen Jesus as a child. John's parents probably died. G, uh, John might have gone into the wilderness. They, 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 they were cousins, but they didn't necessarily know each other. But he, through the prophetic movement of the Spirit, understood this was Jesus coming. Well, then the heavens opened up. What did that look like? I don't know. <laughs> but something split. This isn't the first time. You go to Ezekiel chapter 1. It says here, the heavens were open and Ezekiel saw visions of God. Acts chapter 7, verse 55, as Stephen is being uh, stoned to death, he gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and cried out, behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. And they just picked up more rocks to kill him because of that one. And then you have that wonderful passage in Revelation chapter 19. The apostle John saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he was sat upon it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So the heavens open and then the spirit comes down. Now, you know, the, the, the typical way of, of demonstrating this is, is, is like he's flying down like a dove. Probably doesn't mean that. He just lighted, the spirit lighted upon Jesus like what a dove would do when he's lighting upon, uh, upon the ground here. Uh, now, here's another question. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus already have the Holy Spirit? Yeah, he's part of the Trinity, right? But again, this is symbolic. It's way of God affirming the ministry of Jesus Christ here. And then, of course, to continue with that affirmation, a voice comes from heaven. Of course, it's the voice of God the Father. You are my beloved son. With you, you, with you I am well pleased. Now, this is kind of a lopsided sermon because you've already gotten 30 minutes of the background and everything. But this is really the point of the sermon. This is the issue here. This is the Son of God. He's not just a prophet. This is the reason why he can anoint you with the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God. And because of that, God is well pleased. So you have here this wonderful, wonderful declaration from heaven uh, where he says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is, this is keeping with the, uh, the truths of Psalm chapter 2, right? As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make you, you make the nations your heritage, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. So you have this wonderful sense here uh, that the, son, the, the father is coming down physically and the person of the Holy Spirit. And then this voice from heaven that other people heard here. You have the presence of the Trinity. You have the Son and Jesus, you have the Father speaking, and then you have the Holy Spirit uh, coming down. And you need to believe what God says. And this is affirmed by witness. This is what God says. So he's pleased with the ministry of Jesus Christ, which means he's pleased with all the things Jesus said and did, which means you need to believe absolutely everything he said. You need to believe God's word. 
John, the Apostle John, tells us that in 1 John, towards the end of his life, he, he was actually there. He and Andrew were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And he says this, And we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. You know, it's interesting, uh, earlier Luke caught, says John's preaching good news, and John's good news was to blast people because of their sin. <laughs> well, that's part of the good news. That's part of getting to the point where you recognize that you need a Savior. So what happens if you do believe? What happens if you actually believe that the Spirit came down on Jesus and that God said from heaven that this is my beloved Son in whom you believe? Well, Malachi, going back to Malachi, gives us a sense of what happens but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. John says in John 1, 15, uh, 12, for all who did receive him to them, he gave right to become children of God. Now, I want you to think about that. If you're a Christian, you're adopted by God. You become a child of God because you're a Christian. When God sees you, he sees you as his perfect son, Jesus Christ. It's like Christ filters away all of your sins, all of your disappointments, all of your bad worship, all of your whatevers. And he sees his perfect son. For the Christian, when you appear before the Lord, he is going to say, Behold, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and I'm so well pleased. Folks, whatever you got to give up, it's worth it. Whatever you got to do to grab more of Jesus and to love him all the more and to serve him all the more, even to the point where you would consider yourself the lowest slave of Christ, it's worth it because that time's coming. And those are all words we want to hear from God. I am well pleased. Father, I pray that you would help us to overcome anything that interferes with us being able to serve you completely. We never get there. Uh, we just seem to disappoint ourselves and you often. But in faith, we believe what Scripture says, and that is that you forgive and forget our sins. You love us. And you demonstrated that love to the point where you gave your only begotten son to die for us. If there could have been any other way, you would have chosen it, but you didn't. So let us believe that truth. Because I'm convinced, Lord, the more we focus on your grace and your love, the less we'll want to fool around with the, the sins of this world and the shortcuts to pleasure. Help us, Lord, all to prepare for that day when you will tell us that you are well pleased. In Christ's name, amen.